Welcome to Living in the Light and an introduction to today's message from Anne Graham Lotz. You think the world's falling apart? Actually, it's falling into place, isn't it? God is just rearranging the chessboard and just preparing everything and everyone for Jesus to come back. You're listening to Bible teacher Anne Graham Lotz, heard each week here on Living in the Light. And begins first by reading John's words in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and earth and sky fled from his presence. There was no place for them. You know what that means? There's no hiding place, not even a shadow. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Now listen to me. These are the bad guys. These are the guys who have died. They've gone to hell or whatever the place is they go to until this point. And then he says, another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done according, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. And each one, one by one, stands before the judge, seated on that great white throne. I don't even know if they can see him. I know they don't know his name, much less they can speak his name after they've been profaning his name and blaspheming his name and they can't say a word, and the books are opened, and they're judged according to their works. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let me tell you something. If you're judged according to your works, you know how people say, I'm going to go to God, and he's going to see my works, and if my good works outweigh my bad works, and he's going to let me into heaven. I deserve to go into heaven. You know, I've done better things, and I've done bad things. And You know, you, their mentality, and they will be judged according to their works. But you can't do enough good things to please a holy God. And you can't do them perfectly enough to please him. So to be judged according to your works is to be condemned. But at that point, there's no cross. There's no savior. There's no lamb of God. Just the judge sitting on the great white throne. And all the world is silent before him. And he has the last word. And he opens the books to make sure he's fair and balanced. He reads those works and the things that people have done and every single one is found wanting none of them good enough because there's none righteous no not one all of our righteousness is as filthy rags and they had rejected a savior they had rejected salvation because they thought there are other ways to god besides the cross you know there are other ways and i don't need to ask anybody for forgiveness and God is a loving God. <laughs> he would never send anybody to hell. That's not my God. Now, you can believe in a God like that, but not me, you know. And it's too late at that moment to make any difference. Well, that's a very frightening picture to me. Who do you know is going to be there? One of the things that should do is compel us to put on those gospel of peace on our feet and... <laughs> cleated sandals and take the gospel to the world. I don't care if they tell us it's not politically correct. And we share the gospel and tell people that God loves you and God loves you and God loves you and he loves you so much that he sent his own son to die on the cross. That if you would just place your faith in him, how simple could it be? Simple but hard, isn't it, to confess that you're a sinner, to crucify your pride, to admit that you're just like everybody else. But if you do, 
And if you confess you're a sinner and you come to the cross and you put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, your sins are forgiven and you will not perish. You will never stand before the white throne. You will never go to hell. You're saved from judgment. You have everlasting life. And everlasting life, remember, is a personal, permanent, privileged, purposeful relationship with God right here and now and the guarantee of heaven when you die. Now that's a message to tell in our hopeless world that's unraveling. Don't you be afraid of the great white throne, but let that fear of those standing there motivate you and compel you to share the gospel with others. That if the Lord Jesus were to come today, and if their lives were required of them, that's where they would stand. If Jesus comes today, in a sense, they have a second chance, if you call the tribulation a second chance. And I believe people will come to faith in Jesus during that tribulation period. But I don't want them to go through that either. <laughs> so that's motivation to me to share the gospel. So Habakkuk has been wrestling, watching, and now he's just going to worship. And he acknowledges God's person. And he acknowledges that God is the God of history, Habakkuk. Chapter 3, verse 2. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And he remembers the history. God is the God of history. History is his story. And so let's start with Adam and Eve when they sinned. And God pronounced judgment on them. And they were separated from him. And death came into the world. But... In wrath, even while he's pronouncing judgment, he remembers mercy and he slays that animal and he clothes them with the skin of an animal. Blood was shed and I wonder if tears were coming down the creator's face knowing that one day it would be the lamb of God whose blood would be shed to cover us from our sin and our shame. In wrath, he remembered mercy. In Noah's day, when God said, I'm grieved that I've made mankind, all of them are evil, all their thoughts and their intents are evil, wicked all the time. But there's one man who's righteous, blameless in his generation. And he said, Noah, I'm going to judge the whole world. I'm going to destroy the whole world. And people who make fun of that story and think it's a Sunday school story or, you know, whatever, it's just, do you hear the enemy? If I were the enemy, I would convince you that Noah was just some joke, a Sunday school, something on a flannel board, but... If I were the enemy, I would never want you to know that there is judgment for sin and it doesn't matter. There's no safety in numbers. You know, God will judge the whole world. But in wrath, God remembered mercy and he said, Noah, build an ark because I want anybody and everybody to come into the ark. I want them to be saved. I don't want any to perish. But only Noah and his family came in. But in wrath, God remembered mercy. Abraham praying for Sodom. And God said, I'm going to destroy Sodom because of what I see there and the cry that's come up to me. And Abraham prays and prays and prays. And finally, God looks at Sodom and opens up the heavens and fire falls down. And he destroys Sodom. And he judges Sodom. But in wrath, he remembers mercy. And he grabs Lot and his family, Abraham's nephew, and he literally drags them out of Sodom. In wrath, he remembers mercy. Let me pick up the Passover because God is pouring out his judgment on Egypt, pouring out his judgment on Pharaoh, and he's going to destroy all the firstborn and just forcing Pharaoh's hand to let my people go. 
But in wrath, he remembers mercy and he says, if you'll paint your doorposts of your house with the blood of a lamb, when I see the blood, I'll pass over. Do you know that applied to Egyptians as well as Israelites? And there were Egyptians who came under the blood and they were saved because in wrath, God remembers mercy. And then Jericho. When the enemy stronghold was there and Joshua had sent two spies in Jericho and you know he, he parked all of Israel, probably two million people right there waiting for two weeks, three weeks while he sent the spies in to see what Jericho was like and how big the walls were and how many... Go- had nothing to do with the way they took Jericho. You know what God was doing? In wrath, he was going to remember mercy and he knew there was one little Canaanite prostitute who was crying out to him. And so he parked Israel there while he made time to contact her and let her know she could be saved. And so when they marched around those walls and in the seventh day they gave the shout of victory and the walls came tumbling down and they took the enemy fortress, the one part of the wall that was still standing was the one where Rahab's house was and Rahab and her family were saved because in wrath God remembers mercy. Oh, what a great God we serve. And Habakkuk is worshiping the God of history. And you look back at his history and you see also evidence of his mercy. Yes, he's the God of wrath, but he's the God of mercy and forgiveness and grace and love. Not willing for any to perish, not wanting any all to come to repentance. I think that's one reason he hasn't come back yet. He's just waiting for the last person to enter in. And then he worshiped the God of purity. In verse 3, he says, you are the Holy One. And he has to rest on the fact, God, that you do the right thing. You're holy. There's no impurity with you. If you use the Babylonians that judge Judah, then I know you are holy. That doesn't take away from your holiness. You're a God of purity. You're a God of glory in verse 3. And he says, God came from Teman, the Holy One. His glory covered the heavens. His praise filled the earth. His splendor like the sunrise, rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. That's the second coming. Habakkuk is given a glimpse of when real judgment will take place and when real vindication will take place. And in God's wrath that's poured out on the world, the mercy that he has on his people, and he comes back to deliver his people and to save his people and to set up his kingdom on earth. And, and Habakkuk is seeing through the future and giving a glimpse of the return, the glory of God. And then he worships the God of fury. I don't know how else to describe this. In verse 5, plague went before him. Listen, plagues like E. coli and Ebola and typhoid and the bubonic plague and AIDS and plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. Earthquakes, cyclones, tornadoes, hurricanes. He looked and he made the nations tremble. All these wars and rumors of wars and bombs and ancient mountains crumbled. The age-old hills collapsed because God is a God of fury and he's angry at sin and he moves. And when God moves, it's not always pleasant. And he worships this God who gets the world's attention through so many of these disasters and things. And so sometimes I think, you know, you think the world's falling apart. Actually, it's falling into place, isn't it? God is just rearranging the chessboard and just preparing everything and everyone for Jesus to come back. And he worshiped the God of eternity. Verse 6 when he says, your ways are eternal. God has this plan in place since before the foundations of the world were laid. 
and he is working his plan. So when we see things and we don't expect and we don't understand, we just worship a God of eternity, a God who is the great I am yesterday, today, and forever. The same yesterday, today, and forever. All-powerful, almighty, all-loving, all-merciful. He is eternal. And then he worships the God of authority. Verse 8, when he says, Were you angry with the rivers? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you raise against the sea? You know, had somebody challenge me last week, and you can't say these environmental disasters are acts of God. So no, I know I can't say that for sure. But in the Bible, in Scripture, it indicates when he moves, sometimes he uses the natural elements. And if they're not paying attention to him because they don't go to church and they don't believe in the Bible and they make fun of Christians and you know all the rest of it and they say we all have our own gods, then he'll just show you, let me show you what God I am. And he'll send the biggest hurricane ever, the biggest cyclone ever, the greatest drought, the biggest flood, the biggest earth. I mean, you know, it all belongs to him. And so he's the God of authority. He rules over all. Creation is his. He can do what he chooses. So he uses... Natural elements for supernatural purposes, it's just that we call it global warming, you know? (laughs) Trying to explain away, this is a movement of God. And then he worships the God of victory. Let me read these verses. Verse 11, sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out, listen to me, threshing the nations, but he's coming to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot because God moves heaven and earth to rescue his people. He's the rescuer. He's the savior. He's the deliverer. And when we read through the book of Revelation, which is maybe one of my favorite, if not... My favorite book in the Bible. You read through some of those chapters, 6 through 19, and they're terrifying. With all the beasts and the demons and the judgment and the plagues and the trumpets and the bowls and the whatever. But listen, that is God pouring out his wrath on the bad guys, on the wicked, because he's coming back to deliver his people and to establish his reign on earth and his righteousness. So one day, truth will triumph over falsity and love will triumph over hate and goodness will triumph over evil and right will triumph over wrong. And he's coming as God of victory. He has the victory. And so Habakkuk is worshiping God, as he is, acknowledging his person and then accepting God's plan. Finally, wrestling, watching, worshiping with fear. Verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones. My legs trembled. Habakkuk sees what's coming. He knows it's going to get worse. And he's terrified. And if I can just say this, I believe we're living very close to the return of Jesus. I believe we may be, I believe we are, can I just say it, that last generation, I believe my lifetime is the last generation. And I base that on what Jesus said and the signs that he gave us. And so I've thought of the rapture. In fact, I'm so sure the rapture is so close. I even put things on my website to say to people after the rapture, you know, to help bring them to Christ. I just feel burdened for them because... I look ahead and I think, you know, the rapture, when I said last night that 
the answer for America is either revival of the church or the return of Jesus. Actually, that's the answer for us. When Jesus comes at the rapture, that will be judgment for America in particular. You imagine you take all believers out of America? And can you imagine the chaos and the confusion and the disruption? Can you imagine the planes crashing out of the sky and the cars crashing on the highway and doctors disappearing from the operating theaters and businesses and business leaders and stock, but the whole thing will melt down. And then I can just see the carnage and the depression and the violence in the streets and the confusion and the despair and the anger and the hatred and nothing there to quell that. You know, it's all just unleashed. And then the enemy who, who could anticipate something of what was coming, jumping in to manipulate it and to set up a kingdom on earth that's his kingdom, that he fools everybody thinking that he can make it right and he can bring peace, peace, but there's no peace at all. In fact, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And you can see it coming. I guess what strikes fear in my heart is that I wonder if judgment will come on America before the rapture. Because I believe it might be one way God would have of purifying his church, making us so desperate we would cry out to him and we would begin to separate from the world that we've become so much alike and would stand up and be counted and bold in our faith. And I've told my children, if God allows us to go through times like that where the economy crashes and the enemy attacks and other things, then God knows who are his. And we're going to see our God like they did in the Old Testament. And we're going to see him like Corey Tenboom did in Ravensbrook. Do you remember when she had that little vial of vitamin drops and she wanted to hoard it, but instead she shared it with everybody in her little section? And as long as she shared the vitamin drops, that little vial lasted? We're going to see miracles like that. Maybe water come out of a rock. Maybe manna come down from heaven. Maybe people healed. We don't need the hospital. He will take care of us. And some of us may pay the ultimate price for our faith, like those 21 Egyptian Christians on the beach in Libya, all shouting the name of Jesus as they were beheaded. And at that moment, God will give us all that we need. At the moment, saving grace, dying grace, I believe it. It's just that you look ahead, and it makes you shudder and weep at what's coming. So he accepts God's plan, but with fear. He's shaken to the core. And then with faith, though the fig tree does not bud, basically though I have no hope, I, see, I don't see anything getting better. There are no grapes on the vine. I have no extras. There's no sparkle in life, you know, no fun. Though the olive crop fails and my income collapses, I have no job anymore. The fields produce no food. My plans for the future just come up empty. There are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls. All my investments, my retirement, my Social Security, my IRA just evaporate. If the worst happens, if things don't change except on the downhill, how do we respond? Verse 18, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in my Savior because my joy is not in the circumstances. It's not in the world situation. It's not getting from God what I want, when I want, the way I want it, how I want it. My joy is just in him. And you see Habakkuk coming to the point that he can accept God's plan with fear. He's scared to death, but with faith because his faith rests in God and God alone. God, I just rejoice. And sometimes joy is a choice, isn't it? We have to choose to rejoice. Isn't that what Paul said from the 
jail in Rome to the Philippians? Rejoice, he said, and I'm going to tell you again. Get your act together. Rejoice. If ever somebody had an opportunity not to, it had to have been Paul. Old, tired, cold, broken, facing death, and he chose to rejoice. And we rejoice. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. And we put our focus on Jesus, and we just rejoice in who he is, in all his glory, in all his beauty. If he never does anything for us, if he never solves our problems, if he never answers our prayer, oh, God, we rejoice in who you are. We just love you. And then I want you to see this. Because he accepted God's plan with fear, faith, and freedom. And this is where he broke. Verse 19, the sovereign Lord. Notice the way he addresses him. The sovereign Lord. God, you can do what you choose. You can do what you want. Who am I to tell you what to do? You are sovereign. And the sovereign Lord is my strength. You will get me through the tough times. And he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He's going to give me strength to equal my needs. Strength for today. And then I'll get strength for tomorrow and enable me to do the things I need for my family, for my ministry, for other things. He enables me to go on the heights. That means to rise above my circumstances. To live not somehow, but triumphantly. And to soar like wings of an eagle. So... Habakkuk was set free. And it's as though he had this prayer request for his loved one wrapped in his hand. God, I want you to do this and this and this, but oh my goodness, don't do that and don't do that and don't do that. I, I think you need to do it this way and now and how and when and why. And at the end of this book, it's just like his fingers have gotten pried off of his request. And he just says, God, have your way. I just submit to you. And I trust you, and I praise you, and I worship you. And what Habakkuk ended up with was a brokenness in himself. Just let it go. You just let it go. Doesn't mean we're not to pray. Doesn't mean we're not to reverse the thunder. Doesn't mean we're not to search scriptures and find a promise and pray it back to God. But if you've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, then you just reach a point, Lord, have your own way. I just let it go. I trust you. You're sovereign. You're Lord. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And when he's Lord of your prayer life, Lord of those answers that you're trying to get, Lord of your plans for the future, of what's going on in your family, whatever happens, whatever comes, if you never answer my prayer the way I've been asking you, it's okay, because you're going to give me strength for my day. You're going to make my feet like the feet of a deer so I can handle the things that come and I'll walk on the heights. I can triumph right where I am. Would you pray and pray and pray until you reach that point of brokenness and you accept what he's going to do? Even though it strikes fear to your heart, you accept it by faith. And with the freedom that comes by you just roll it all over to him. Would you do that? Don't throw away your prayer. Don't throw away your prayer life. Just, the prayer is not broken. Maybe God is just wanting to break you so that you let him have his way in your life. Here's Anne with today's concluding thought. What prayer request are you tightly clutching? 
What are you insisting that God do for you or for someone else? And he hasn't done it the way you want, when you want, how you want. Are you crying out in your spirit, why God, why won't you answer my prayer? And do you really mean, why God, why won't you do things my way? Why won't you do what I tell you to do? It's time for you to let go. Now, let God have his way. Will you pray with Habakkuk, though God doesn't answer my prayer the way I want, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He is sovereign. He knows what he's doing, and I trust him. Listen to me. The sovereign Lord is trustworthy. So trust him. Trust him. You've been listening to Living in the Light. And when you go to angramlots.org, there are free resources to help you in your study of God's Word. Anne's desire is that you embrace a God-filled life, step-by-step, choice-by-choice, living in the light.